So number one, flee sin. Yeah. Pursue godliness. Fight the fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Be generous and guard the truth. And do that all relying upon God's grace, because otherwise it's not going to work. So as we're coming to our last study in, in the letter of Paul to First Timothy, to Timothy, his first letter, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read the last several verses from First Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 11 to 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the, the, the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Father, we ask that your grace would be with us now as we seek to understand your truth, as you've revealed it through the Apostle Paul. Help me to make it clear in the way I speak, to do justice to your word. May you give us open hearts, receptive minds to your truth, and may it transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul starts out by calling Timothy a man of God. He says, but as for you, O man of God, that term is used 68 times in the Old Testament. It was used for as a title for people like Moses, uh, David, and the prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Samuel. So Paul is calling Timothy a man of God along the lines of the Old Testament prophets, who is able to, uh, whose, whose assignment is to confront the false teachers who are in the midst of of the church in Ephesus. And he tells him, flee, 
Flee the ways and works of these false teachers is what he's saying. And last week in, in, cha- in chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, he particularly said, was highlighting these things, that they, they were conceited, they were arrogant, they were ignorant of the gospel, they craved controversy, they loved controversy, they loved fights, stirring up word wars, um, that produced envy, dissensions, slanders, and suspicions, and constant friction between those of corrupt mind who have lost the truth, and they were greedy for money, and they had abandoned the faith. So they don't have a very good resume. So he's saying, don't flee these things. Flee these things that, that uh, led to them living this way. And even though Timothy is a man of God who is to confront these false teachers, Paul exhorts Timothy to flee their ways and their works, lest he be tempted to get sucked into the very same things that they were doing, to their same attitudes. We can't just withdraw from everything, for sure. We can't just draw back from the world. But we do need, at the same time, we must flee the temptations just to just go with the flow of the world. Because if we do, um, we get desensitized and, and easily slip into the very same things that the world uh, does that's not godly. So the sense of the, the word flee is continuous. He says, keep fleeing. So just continue to flee these things. And so the question I have for, for you and me is, is, what are we fleeing from? And are there some things that we're not fleeing from now that we should have continued to flee from? So make your list. What should you be fleeing from these days? Your flight list. But living for Jesus is not just about what we are fleeing from. It's what we're pursuing as well. But what, what are we pursuing? And so he tells Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, which is a big Buzzword in, in this letter, he uses that quite a bit. Faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, he says. Paul calls Timothy to pursue these things because he and we won't perfectly attain them in this life. So we're never going to arrive at these things, but we're to continue to pursue them. And again, the sense of the word is to keep pursuing them, continue to pursue them. They're not virtues that you try to, for a few days and give up because they're too hard. Oh, I tried to pursue godliness, but it was too hard, so I'm moving on to other things, uh, which is not good. Uh, keep pursuing godliness because it's total devotion to God. Be devoted to God. Keep pursuing righteousness. Keep pursuing what is right in God's sight. It's like, what, do you, what else are you going to do? You're going to choose what's not right in God's sight because it's too hard? Pursue faith. Keep trusting God. Pursue love. Keep loving his people. Pursue steadfastness, endurance. Keep enduring in hope in God, even when you're suffering and you're struggling, especially when you're suffering and struggling. Keep pursuing hope. Pursue gentleness. That is self-control, and it also has to do with being kind to difficult people. And then in verse 12, he's giving other exhortations. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Why does Paul tell Timothy to fight the the good fight of faith? Why is faith a fight? Because the world and our own nature is not friendly to Christ and his his gospel. We don't don't just check in with faith and and have smooth sailing from that point on. Um. The false teachers in in Ephesus had heard the true gospel and were part of the church in Ephesus, but they abandoned the faith. 
They bought into a false gospel and the love of money, and they wandered away from the faith. So don't let this happen to you, Paul's saying. Don't take faith for granted. You've got to continue to fight to, to, to continue growing in your faith, to, to hold on to it. The temptations we experience, the trials we go through, the suffering we go through, the things that the world wants us to love more than God, all can lead us to forsake our faith in Christ. So there's an all-out war for our faith. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there is. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I, I thought we were secure in Christ. I, I didn't think that, that we would abandon faith in Christ. Well, it's true that we are guarded by the power of God through faith for salvation, as Peter says in his letter. And Jude says God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before him. So but God, so God he, he's got the power to keep us. But the New Testament is clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But those who God keeps by his grace are responsible to persevere in faith. We have to continue to fight for it. It teaches that both God keeps us, but we must fight the fight of faith. And that Paul is talking about persevering and saving faith in Christ is evident in the next exhortation where he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. God calls people to receive eternal life through faith in Jesus. Now, obviously, Paul's not saying to Timothy that, like, you, you haven't done this yet. You haven't believed in Jesus yet. Obviously, Paul did. Timothy did already trust Christ. But he's saying keep the good fight of faith in Christ. Hold fast to your eternal life. Per- persevere in faith in Christ for eternal life. It's like marriage. You don't keep falling in and out of being married to your spouse. At least I don't recommend it. You Instead, you hold fast to your spouse. Fight what threatens to keep your marriage from being healthy. Fight what threatens to break up your marriage. Hold on to your, your, your spouse. You're still married, but you, you fight to keep the marriage intact, to keep it healthy, to keep it growing. Paul says to Timothy, remember, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's talking about Timothy's baptism. God called you to eternal life in Christ, and you made the good confession that you were putting your faith in Christ before many witnesses in your baptism. And again, that's like marriage. Remember when you made the good confession before many witnesses that you would be faithful to your spouse in, in the marriage covenant? Hold fast to that promise. Hold fast to your covenant. That's what he's saying. In verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. He continues to exhort Timothy to persevere. He says, I charge you, I command you in the presence of God who gives life to all things before God who is the giver and sustainer of all life. And I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus who made the good confession in the presence in, before God. Pontius Pilate. What was Christ's confession before Pontius Pilate? Well, Pilate said to him when Jesus was on trial, standing before him, uh, so you're a king? And Jesus said, you got that right. So many words. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the to, to the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, he listens to my voice. 
So Jesus told the truth about himself, which put him at risk that Pilate would either think he was crazy or think he was a threat to a competitor king, to the emperor. He's telling Pilate that he has the truth Pilate needs to obey. Jesus is saying this to someone who, who has him on death row, like he's, he could put, have him put to death. And, of course, Pilate did just give Jesus over to be put to death. So Jesus did not compromise the testimony about himself before Pilate. So what Paul is charging Timothy to do is don't compromise your testimony. Don't shade the truth. What he's, he's charging Timothy uh, with weighty, a non-negotiable, not-to-be-compromised um, truth. In verse 14, he continues. He says, what I'm charging you to do is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until Jesus comes. What is the commandment or the mandate that he's charging uh, Timothy with? Well, it's basically what he said in, in the, the whole scope of this letter. Uh, he's, he's telling Timothy to stop those who are teaching false doctrine, teach the way of true godliness in Christ, continue to teach that, teach how people should behave in the life of the church, and pursue godliness. So he's teaching those things. So just keep doing this, Timothy. Don't. This is what your, your duty is before, before God and before Christ. Keep it unstained, irreproachable, until Jesus returns. Don't compromise or water down the truth to tell people what they want to hear. And don't grow weary of teaching truth and pursuing godliness. And he says in verse 15 that Jesus, God, will bring, will display Jesus at the proper time. Jesus is going to return at the proper time. In his time, he's going to display his glory and he, he will return. As Paul thinks about Christ's appearing, he launches into a doxology, which is a word of praise. He launches into a praise of Jesus and of God. He extols the glory and excellency of God, which is why Timothy can and should persevere because of God's greatness. So he says God is blessed, which is a word that means happy. God is happy. He knows there's a big mess of the world. He hates the evil that's there, but he's, he's a joyful God because he's not stressed out. He's not distressed. He's not worried about how he's going to fulfill his plan to establish his, his kingdom. He's not um, confused about how it's going to work out. He's not anxious as to whether he can conquer all the evil and set up his kingdom. And he is the only sovereign. He's the only sovereign in the universe. There is no other sovereign, really. The emperor, the Roman emperor thought he was sovereign, claimed to be, but, but only, only God is sovereign. You say, well, that's good, but what is sovereign? Well, he is unquestionable. He's absolute. He's unconquerable authority. He, he's, there is no other higher authority. He can do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. There is no other sovereign ruler who is king of kings and lord of lords. And in, in the days in which we live, we need to know that God is sovereign over all that's taking place. He rules. He's not threatened. He's, he's working it out. And in verse 16, Paul continues extolling who, God, who this God is that, that Timothy is accountable to for his ministry. God alone has immortality. Now, again, the, the, uh, the emperor of, of Rome claimed to be immortal. There are other immortal beings like angels, and, and we will live forever. But only God in himself is inherently immortal. He, he just is that. He didn't inherit it. From, so nobody gave it to him. He just is immortal. 
And he dwells in unapproachable light. God dwells in blazing glory. In such bright radiance that none can approach him. He's a consuming fire. The light of his holiness is so intense, none can directly draw near to him. And Paul says, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. In himself, God cannot be seen. No one's ever seen God for who, all that he is. Um, <clears throat> when we do see God, he, he appears in human form. Like in the Old Testament, he could show up as a man. And in the New Testament, he came as Jesus. He sent his son. And, and so Jesus reveals to us God. And, and he's the God we're going to see in eternity as well. But you can't see God in his essence, in who he is. To him be honor and eternal dominion, Paul says. So God is, this awesome God deserves honor. And the, the world's um, sin, the world's rejection of honoring God is the problem with the world. Because the world does not honor God, it's a mess. Things get ruined when you don't honor God. And he has eternal dominion. He rules forever. His might and his power is eternal. He doesn't ever need a recharge. His dominion and power will never fade. And these words, I mean, these we need to take these words in because it's so easy to trivialize God in our culture. We just we we trivialize God. We we diminish him. We make him at our our hip pocket, our our helper when we need him. This is the God whom we whom we serve, who alone is sovereign, immortal, dwells in unapproachable light. And then it sounds like Paul should be done with the letter now. Okay, it's a good time to sign off now, Paul. But he, he actually has some more to say to us. He's in verse 17, he, he turns to talking to the rich. Any, any rich people here today? All right, so we'll just pass this one on. But just in case you know somebody who's rich, Paul's talking to the rich. Actually, last in the last passage in verses 3 through 10, he wrote of, of the false teachers who saw godliness as a means of financial gain. And he said that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare and plunge into ruin and destruction. So just desiring to be rich can really ruin you, he says. He said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that by craving money, some have wandered away from the faith. So some of Chuck the Christian faith because of love of money and pierce themselves with many pains and anxieties. But now he's going to talk to people who are rich, not just to people who want to be rich wannabes, but who are rich. And as we mentioned last week, uh, most of us here are rich by the world standards. Like if you make 25,000 bucks a year, you're in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. So we're, we are rich. Many of us. He exhorts the rich in, in this present age. He, he emphasizes the, the rich in this present time, the present age in which we live, because your riches don't carry over. So it's just for this present age. He exhorts the rich not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, because they can afford many comforts and advantages. Because we can afford many comforts and advantages, we can become haughty. We forget that everything that we have is from God. Everything we have is from God. And that he gave them the power to get wealth. Hey, I made this money. 
Well, yes, but God gave you the job. He gave you the power. He gave you the life. He, he, he provided everything for you to make this money that you've made. And so the rich can have a mindset of self-sufficiency and, and superiority, he says. So he says the rich must not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches are not a foundation for a certain hope. God is the only certain hope we have. And when Paul says this, he's not saying, he's not condemning having riches altogether. He says we are to not put our hope in riches, but in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God gave us things to enjoy. It's good to enjoy the gifts that God's given us. It's not wrong to enjoy the good things God provides. It is wrong to hope in them, to trust in them rather than God. So you don't love the gifts more than God the giver. And he continues to say what the rich should do in verse 18 is they, they are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So in realizing that all that you have is gifted you from God, you will not want to just keep it for you, for you to enjoy, but you will want to use it for the joy and good of others. As God has done good to you in providing good things, so should you do for others, he says. The rich who hope in God then are to do good, be rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, ready to share your stuff and your money. And in verse 19, he says, as they do good and generously share, this way they are storing up treasure for themselves. Yeah, you're actually storing up treasure for yourself by doing that. The rich are often investing or looking to invest for the future, for their kids' college, for income, for retirement. Paul says that in doing good and generously sharing what they have, they're storing up treasure for themselves in heaven, storing up treasures for themselves. Yes, their generosity will benefit others, but, but how will it benefit them? Their generosity is putting their treasure on layaway as a good foundation for the future. Placing their treasures, their investment into this heavenly foundation expresses their hope in God, saying, I recognize that God entrusted these things to me to do good for his kingdom, for him, in his name. They're put, so they're putting their hope in God and not, and not the world's riches. They, they, this way they take hold of what is truly life, eternal life, as he says. This doesn't mean that they are earning or, or meriting eternal life as they give. They don't, like, start earning eternal life by giving. But it means that their hearts are freed up from bondage to earthly riches to truly lay hold of, of eternal life. Jesus was teaching this in Matthew 6. I'll just read this to you, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. It's not up on the screen. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, where recessions can hit. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, and notice he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Yeah, if, you, if you're giving to, to God's causes, you will see the benefit of that in heaven, in his kingdom. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it, it shows where your heart is. It shows where your heart is. This is like what Paul said to Timothy 
a few verses earlier in verses 11 through 12, that he should flee corrupt cravings and, and pursue godliness to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of eternal life to which God called him. He wasn't telling Timothy to earn eternal life by his own efforts. He, he was calling Timothy to keep fighting faith-destroying desires and pursuing faith-purifying passions. So the way the rich specifically keep from setting their hope on the uncertainty of riches and keeping keep laying hold of eternal life is by faith, by being enriched in good works and generously sharing what they have. As believers in Christ, they prioritize giving to gospel-centered works of mercy and mission. And so, uh, as you know, we have opportunities to do that here. We talked about one of them today. We have mercy works. Uh, we work with All God's Children International and Pathways. We have a compassion fund that we use to help people in, in need. We also uh, support open house with goods and services and, and teen reach adventure camps for po- foster kids. Mission works include Pathways, the Pringles serving in Spain and North Africa, the Palais and Gilberts and Holds in India, Sarah Deal in Tanzania, Ron Frost with Barnabas Ministries. So uh, there's Young Life as well. So we we encourage you to give to those works and to the ministry here as well. And then in verse 20 and 21, Paul appeals to Timothy makes a final appeal to Timothy to, regarding the primary need for the health of the church in Ephesus. And that is for Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to him. The phrase, the deposit entrusted, refers to something which someone entrusts to another person for safekeeping and faithful use until the owner wants it back. When you deposit your money in a bank, you want them to keep it for you. You I hope it's earning interest, and it's available when you need it. So what is the deposit entrusted to Timothy? It is the gospel and the truth of godliness. Gospel-centered godliness doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to people that a crucified and resurrected man named Jesus is our only hope for salvation. It doesn't make sense to the world that someone who lived 2,000 years ago is really Lord overall, whose teachings must be obeyed and who is supposed to return to punish the wicked and save his followers so they may live in his kingdom. So he's telling Timothy, guard the truth. We guard the truth by, by knowing it, by studying it, by teaching it, by holding fast to the truth. And we need to hold fast to the truth and guard it in, in the age in which we live, in which all truth is, is rejected. All biblical truth is rejected. And as there was in Paul and Timothy's days, there are those who reject the gospel, the true gospel and Christ-centered godliness for irreverent babble, as he called it, uh, godless empty talk. In guarding the truth, Timothy is to avoid this worthless talk. Paul said back in chapter 1 that what was being taught were myths, genealogies, and speculations. Many who reject the gospel today seem to be wide open and enamored with myths, speculations, uh, astrology, macroevolution, reincarnation, UFOs, occult. Basically, they believe in ABCs, anything but Christianity. And he says, avoid the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
it is an appeal to our pride to think that we we have special insight into the scriptures when we deny what the Bible teaches. We we think we've got a key to understanding the secrets nobody else has ever gotten before in the Bible, and and meanwhile we're t- we're saying exactly what the t- scriptures don't teach. Contradictions can also mean that what is falsely called knowledge is false because it makes self-contradictory claims, such as there is no absolute truth, which is an absolute truth claim. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. So Adolf Hitler was sincere. Does it matter what he believed? So contradictions that are falsely called knowledge. If it is called knowledge but contradicts what Jesus and the apostles taught, it is false. Cults that teach Jesus was really the Archangel Michael, or who teach that Jesus did not die a substitutionary death for the the sins of his people, are false. In Paul's and Timothy's day, some had professed this useless babble in what was falsely called knowledge and swore from the faith. They had abandoned the faith um, or strayed from true faith. This is what is at stake. Thus, Timothy is to guard the truth and, and avoid false knowledge. If you don't hold, if you don't guard the truth, you're setting yourself up and others up for for abandoning the faith. Paul's entrusted Timothy with a great responsibility to guard the truth, to care for his church that had been infected with false teaching to fight the good fight of faith, to keep the mandate blamelessly and above reproach. The only way he can be faithful and, and successful is if God's grace is with him. That's what he says. May the grace grace be with you. We need God's grace to persevere in the, in the faith fight. We need grace to flee sin, grace to pursue godliness. We need grace to, to fight the fight of faith. We need grace to take hold of, of eternal life to be generous and and to guard the truth. So I'm going to pray for us that God's going to keep us by his grace. Join me. Father, it is only by your grace that we would even care to be here, that we would even stand to sing your praises and to pray prayers to you and to hear your word taught. It's only by your grace, Father, that we're rescued from our sin and that we would even live in, want to live in godliness. We need your grace every moment of every day, Father, to persevere in faith, persevere in the fight of faith, to keep our faith st- stuck on Jesus, to rivet it deeply in Jesus, to keep pursuing our relationship with him, to love him, to serve him, to be living for righteousness to be generous, to live in the love that you have given us in Christ. So help us, Father, by your grace to continue to be fruitful in fighting the fight of faith in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.